shoot the messenger. And I invite you to turn with me in the Bible, whether in the pew or the one you have with you, to Jeremiah chapter 26. If you've ever been in the firing line for your faith, then you will find a soulmate in Jeremiah. And you will need the conviction that he had, which gripped this prophet when you come under pressure. So let's read the 26th chapter, which the NIV entitles, Jeremiah Threatened with Death. Early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people of the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from his evil way. Then I will relent and not bring on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my law, which I have set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and this city an object of cursing among all the nations of the earth. The priests, the prophets, and all the people hear Jeremiah speak these words in the house of the Lord. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, You must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh and this city will be desolate and deserted? And all the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard about these things, they went up from the royal palace to the house of the Lord and took their places at the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city. You have heard it with your own ears. Then Jeremiah said to all the officials and all the people, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the things you have heard. Now reform your ways and your actions and obey the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent and not bring the disaster he has pronounced against you. As for me, I am in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on those who live in it. For in truth... The Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man should not be sentenced to death. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. 
Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. And the temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah, put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against him? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. Now, Uriah, son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. He prophesied the same things against this city and this land as Jeremiah did. When King Jehoiakim and all his officials and officers heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard of it and fled in fear to Egypt. King Jehoiakim, however, sent Elnathan, son of Akbor, to Egypt, along with some other men. They brought Uriah out of Egypt and took him to King Jehoiakim, who had him struck down with a sword and his body thrown into the burial place of the common people. Furthermore, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, supported Jeremiah, and so he was not handed over to the people to be put to death. Amen. Let's just pray together one final time for clarity as we come to study this together. And this is the words of a hymn written by John Newton. Lord, inspire the preacher's heart and teach his tongue to speak. Food to the hungry soul impart and cordials to the weak. Furnish us all with light and powers to walk in wisdom's ways. So shall the benefits be ours, and thou shalt have the praise. Amen. Several summers back, I was working for a firm through in Glasgow, and I had the pleasure of working under a very gifted superior. This man had enormous experience, extensive people skills, and a wage packet so large that it probably dwarfed the rest of his staff put together. Well, I was one of his minions, and I was sent on numerous occasions on various errands, uh, often to other buildings in the town, to get this or that. And one thing I discovered very quickly was that there was great advantage in using my boss's name. Uh, It seemed that when I went on my own behalf, as little me, I didn't get very far very fast. But when I used his name, when I said that he had sent me, it was just amazing how quickly things got done. And I learned through that experience that when you are a messenger... It makes all the difference in the world to have the conviction and the confidence that you have been sent. That someone of considerable significance has sent you 
on the errand. And I do believe as we look at this chapter together, we're going to see this morning that Jeremiah the prophet was a man with such a conviction. He is gripped by this fact, by this reality that he has been called by God and commissioned by God and sent by God to bring a message to the people. And rather like when I went to these different places, there were repercussions when I came in my boss's name. So we're going to see there were enormous repercussions for Jeremiah. Some of them positive, some of them negative. Well, let's consider these together. I'm going to boil it down to three results, three outcomes of the fact that Jeremiah is sent by the Lord. Here is the first. The charges he faced. Because Jeremiah was sent by God to proclaim God's word, he faced charges of a most serious nature. And you see, sometimes when the Lord sends us, he in effect puts us in the firing line. He often sends us like a king would of old, like a herald. Across enemy lines with a message to the enemy. And we see this in verses 1 to 11. Because we learn that, in effect, what sparked off these charges and what sparked off this incident was the Lord Almighty himself. Jeremiah does not decide that he is going to go with this message. Jeremiah does not choose to head downtown Jerusalem into the temple and cause havoc. No, the word came from the Lord, verse 1. You know the experience. You're sitting at your computer and one of these awful messages comes up. uh, New mail has arrived. And you didn't compose the message. Someone else generated this. And as you open it up, it may impact. It may affect what you do next. Well, Jeremiah gets a message from God, and it compels him into action. He sends Jeremiah down into the temple, into the the courtyard where the people came in and out, and he gives them a message to proclaim that is most unpopular. He says, Jeremiah, I want you to proclaim this message, no holds barred. Notice the two things that he says to him. First of all, he is to speak to all the people in verse 2. He's not to stand in a private little corner and whisper these things under his breath. And notice secondly, that he's not just to proclaim part of the truth or just a portion of the Lord's message. He's to give them the whole truth. Do not omit a word, the Lord says. The word translated omit in our Bible it literally was used at this time of men's grooming. It literally meant to shave off. And the Lord is saying, listen, don't try and make my message more presentable. Don't shave off any little aspect that you think will make it more palatable or presentable. He says, teach them the whole counsel that I give you. We can think of Paul in a later day, at the end of his time at Ephesus, and he could say to them in Acts 20, 27, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. 
So often we hesitate to share this aspect or that aspect. But the Lord says, Jeremiah, give them the whole. And tell them, notice the message, if then. That is, if you do not listen to me or follow my law, which I've set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, so they have three strikes before they're out. They have the Lord, and they have the law, and they have the prophets. But if you will not listen to those three sources, then, verse 6, I will make this house like Shiloh. Perhaps that doesn't mean much to you, but that would have really had an impact on the original listeners. Shiloh was the place where the presence of God had been. Shiloh was the location where in Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant, within the presence of the Lord, dwelt, used to rest. But God's judgment fell on Shiloh. You can read the story in the Old Testament. 500 years before this time, the sin of God's people was such that he sent the Philistines, Israel's arch enemy, to destroy Shiloh and carry off the Ark of the Covenant. The representation was that the presence of the Lord had left that place. It was God-forsaken And therefore, the word is, if you don't repent, if you don't turn, then this temple is going to become like Shiloh. And Jerusalem will become an object of cursing, much as Shiloh was among the Jews, among the nations. They're going to say, there's Jerusalem. This is fairly strong material that Jeremiah has to proclaim. Occasionally, I get up on a Sunday morning and I look over my notes And I I think to myself, I need to preach this. This is not easy. But Jeremiah, this was an incredibly difficult message to preach. And it has great relevance to us as well, because it shows us how often our message will be unpopular, even as we take it out to those who need to hear it. Notice what happens to Jeremiah in verse 9. All the people crowded around the prophet. This was not the crowd of popularity. This was not a group of people after the sermon saying, well done, pastor, that was a lovely word. This was the lynch mob. You must die, they said in verse 9. This is a living picture of the fact that often the word of God that we take will be inevitably unpopular. Maybe you're a new Christian or relatively new. Perhaps you've already discovered that while some people are receptive to your message, many, many others are not. Perhaps it's come as a surprise to you. But you know, it's always been that way. Paul speaks about the foolishness of preaching, the scandal of the gospel. Billy Graham once said that it is unnatural for Christianity to be popular. And therefore the question is, why in the wide world would you go and take this message which you know will be unpopular to your friends, to your neighbors, to those around you? And the answer is very clear in this passage. The call of God compels you. 
the commission, the fact that God sends me. Peter mentioned earlier those verses from the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That commission still stands for every believer today, even if it means bearing a cross, little or large. We need to go because of the call. This is what causes or allows Christians to risk much for the sake of the gospel. I was reading a very inspiring letter just recently. Perhaps you've not heard of a lady by the name of Karen Watson. Karen Watson, you can read her story in a book called Life's Given, Not Taken. 21st century martyrs. She was killed in March 2004. She was serving in Iraq. And some unknown assailants one day attacked her vehicle and killed her. And in this uh, book, there's a letter that she wrote to her pastors. And on the envelope of of the letter was, open in case of death. So they opened it, and here's what she wrote, or part of it. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this in the event of death. When God calls, mark that, there are no regrets. I try to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. The missionary heart cares more than some think is wise. Risks more than some think is safe. Dreams more than some think is practical. And expects more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him in his care Salam, Karen. See, when you're called, like Jeremiah was called, when you're called, like Karen was called, by the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be willing to stick your head above the parapet, even when the bullets are flying, and when the guns are pointed in your direction. That's the first thing, the charges he faced. Notice a second thing. Because the Lord sends him, the defense... He made in verses 12 to 24. Actually, Jeremiah would probably have been killed if it was not for the fact that some royal officials in the king's household hear of the clamor that's going on. And so they rush down to the temple and quickly they set up a a court in the gate in the temple. This was the courtroom of the ancient day. And they begin to hear the case against Jeremiah. And then the defense comes, the opportunity for Jeremiah's defense. And of course, there's nobody there to defend Jeremiah. He's standing alone. And therefore, he begins to mount his own response. And it is a very strange defense. How often in a courtroom today do you hear the kind of thing that Jeremiah says in verse 14? As for me, I'm in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. That's Jeremiah's plea, however. And what we discover here is that Jeremiah is not 
set out on defending himself. This is so often what we tend to do. Defend our reputation. Watch our own back. But Jeremiah doesn't do this. And instead, notice, he defends two different things. First of all, the message he preaches. And secondly, the people he preaches to. Notice, first of all, that he is concerned that the Lord's message be heard. That the Lord's message be seen for what it is and not fall on deaf ears. That's what he's concerned about. Not that he's rejected, but that the Lord's message is discarded. And this is why twice he repeats this call that the Lord has sent him. Verse 12. The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the things you have heard. And in verse 15, he's even more emphatic. In truth, the Lord has sent me to you. He's saying, I didn't come here off my own back. I didn't walk down here and proclaim these things as something just out of my own imagination. It comes from the Lord, and therefore he says, I'm not speaking against God. This is what they thought. They thought Jeremiah was speaking against the temple and against the Jerusalem, and therefore against God. But he says, actually, I'm speaking for God. And therefore, you really need to listen to what I am saying. Don't you just love Jeremiah here? Uh, Right in the middle of this trial, for the fact that he's proclaiming all this truth, he actually gives them the sermon again. Uh, He thinks, what a wonderful opportunity this is when they're about to lynch me for this message. Let me just tell you the message again, he says. Now reform your ways and your actions, verse 13, and obey the Lord your God. Why? Because this is God's message indeed. What a conviction this man has that his message is God's message. I wonder if we have that kind of conviction. Reminds me of Martin Luther this. You remember the famous often told story of how he's standing and he's being tried for what he's written in his books, which are based on the book. And they say, well, you recant all this truth. And the threat is that he might get killed for this. And he goes away for a night. He comes back after thinking about it. He says, this is God's word. Unless you can prove me wrong by scripture, here I stand. I can do no other. Willing to defend the message even to the end. Notice too, however, a second thing that Jeremiah defends also the people that he preaches to. If this isn't a case of loving your enemies, I don't know what is. Because he wants to actually save the crowd, the mob, from a terrible mistake they're about to make. See, whether he lives or dies is little matter. But if they kill him, Jeremiah's innocent blood will be on their hands. If you killed a a false prophet in the Old Testament, this was legitimate. But if you killed a prophet of God, you shed innocent blood, you killed one who was divinely sanctioned, and therefore you were in big trouble. And so Jeremiah, in effect, says, don't shoot the messenger of God. Centuries ago in Britain, the, the town criers, they used to head into the town centers and they prefaced their words often with this phrase, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, and it wasn't the kind of apologetic way that we often say it today. Uh, this was a warning to people. 
Because you see, they were messengers of the king. And therefore, if you killed the messenger, it was tantamount to attacking the king himself. You were dead meat. How much worse to kill the messenger of the king of kings and the lord of lords. Very serious. That's what he's saying to them. So so Jeremiah loves his enemies by warning them. And and he loves God's word. He defends it before them. What a picture of an ambassador for Christ today that we wouldn't so much love ourselves, but love the message and love those that we proclaim the gospel to. So often our preoccupation is with how we feel about sharing our faith with others. What about them? What about the message of truth? And it's because he takes this stand. Notice the very positive outcome of this that the tide begins to turn and the crowd opinion begins to shift. Firstly, in verse 16, the officials and all the people say, he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord. How fickle this crowd are. They're trying to lynch him two minutes earlier. Now they've changed their mind and they're speaking out for him. And then in verse 17, some elders of the land, some aged, mature people, they raise a precedent as you do in court cases. And they say there was this previous case of a prophet named Micah. And Micah proclaimed terrible things about the temple, terrible things that would happen to Jerusalem. But what happened to him? Well, he wasn't killed by the king of the time, Hezekiah. No. In fact, the people listened to him. They turned from their sin and God relented of what he was about to do. The same is happening now, say the elders. If we kill this man, we will bring disaster on ourselves. So you have the people and you have the elders. And then the the groundswell is finally complete in verse 24, as this gentleman, Ahikam, adds his voice to the crowd. And suffice to say that, that Ahikam's contribution seems to be especially significant. Uh, We actually know from other parts of the Old Testament that Ahikam was a prominent official in the royal household. He was one of those involved in the finding of the book of the law in Josiah's time. And he uses his influence, he uses his position to swing the proceedings Jeremiah's way. wonder how we are using our influence in support of those who need our help. I wonder if we're standing by the suffering church as best we can with the influence and the resources that we have, particularly in the Western church. At the prayer meeting the other week, someone was sharing a story of a Christian pastor in Asia who had been thrown into jail for his faith. And the prognosis did not look good, but thousands of European Christians had written to the government in question. And they had released this man and he was traveling all over Europe thanking people for writing those letters because that support was crucial in swinging it his way. And you see, the same is true even in our little persecutions and even in the small pinch points that we all face. It's a team effort. And we need to be supporting each other and encouraging each other and even being willing to speak out when appropriate. Well, this is the defense he made. And then as we come to the climax, notice 
Thirdly, the third repercussion, the verdict he enjoyed. What was the outcome of all of this? Very simply, Jeremiah got off the hook. Guns were pointed at Jeremiah, but in the end, bullets weren't fired. And he was not handed over, verse 24 says, to the people to be put to death. This is clear. What is sometimes more difficult in a, in a narrative like this is figuring out why. What was the reason behind this, his freedom? We've already seen that in some measure, this was partly due to the support that he had from other people. But I want to suggest to you that there were, in fact, two main reasons, even more prominent reasons, why he enjoyed this favorable outcome. And it's in the text and it's in the the book of Jeremiah. We're just going to look at it now. The first one is this, the faith of Jeremiah. The first reason why Jeremiah is vindicated here is because he did not fear men, but had faith in God and stood firm regardless of what consequences might befall him. The reason I'm sure that this is a key point is that Jeremiah, you notice at the end of the section, is contrasted with another prophet. Uh, This gentleman called Uriah. Did you notice the little parenthesis? It's in brackets in the NIV, and it's not immediately obvious why this is inserted into the story, just before the punchline. Obviously, there are some parallels between these two prophets. Both Uriah and Jeremiah prophesied in the name of the Lord. There's one thing. And interestingly, because it was very common for people to prophesy in the name of the Lord, much more interestingly, they prophesied the same message. That was unusual. This guy Uriah also proclaimed that judgment was coming on Jerusalem, that judgment was coming on the temple, as Jeremiah did. So they're the same on message. And we're also told, thirdly, that he had the same kind of negative response. This did not go down well for him. And we are told that the the king was very upset about this. And all his officers, when they heard these words, they sought to put him to death. So notice all the parallels. Uriah preaches God's word in God's name. The people don't like God's word. And he is threatened with death. It's very similar, isn't it, to Jeremiah's scenario. Except one thing. We're told that Uriah heard of it, he heard what was coming, and he fled in fear to Egypt. He did a runner west to Egypt. To flee anywhere was perhaps a lack of faith, but to flee to Egypt was foolish. Because in this book, even in Jeremiah's prophecy, it is very clear, it is stated that God's people should never flee to Egypt. That they should never trust in Egypt's power or security, their chariots and all the security that they had. And therefore, this is a very decisive act of cowardice. And it is a lack of faith. And the inevitable happens... That as he seeks to save his life, well, what he's recaptured, he's brought back to Jerusalem. 
and the king kills him. In other words, he is a negative example of what happens when you run away, when you seek to save your own life, what happens? You lose it. When you fear, in our terms, that really becoming a Christian will make your life much more difficult, and hey, it might, but you try and save your life and you lose it in the long run. Isn't it ironic that Jeremiah stands firm right in the middle of the lion's den and he is saved? Not Uriah. Now that's the first thing, Jeremiah's faith. The second reason, however, maybe the predominant one, is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God to his promises to Jeremiah. And I'd like you just to turn back for just a moment to Jeremiah chapter 1. Because there's something very significant here as it impinges on this passage. It's hard to understand the narrative here if you don't know what happened back in chapter 1. As we just read a few verses from verse 17, just listen to all the parallels to our passage. Get yourself ready, stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be afraid of them. Or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. Against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you, there's a promise. But they will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. See, Jeremiah was promised opposition, but he was also promised protection, very specifically. This passage is a demonstration of the fact that against the odds, against all probabilities at the beginning of the story, God stands by his promises and he stands with his people. He's faithful. And he protects the prophet. Now, does this mean that we too can bank on the promise of physical protection? I know that often that's a problem for us, but nevertheless, is this saying that we will always miss the bullet? It is not. Please remember that this promise was very specifically given to Jeremiah. And there were many, many other prophets, Jesus frequently spoke of them, who gave their lives and shed their blood for the word of God. But this wasn't Jeremiah's call. So we don't have that promise. But I'd like to say to you this morning that we have an even better promise than he had. Jeremiah was promised physical protection. But we, the people of God, the children of God, are promised spiritual protection. Jesus, in Luke chapter 21, verse 16, spoke of the trials of the last days. He spoke of our generation and the pressure that would come. And he promised opposition, but he also promised protection. Listen to what he said. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, 
you will gain life. Now that seems a slightly confusing juxtaposition, doesn't it? Uh, They will put some of you to death physically, but not a hair on your head will perish. You will gain life. Seems like it's a contradiction. It's not. The point that he's making in the second half is a spiritual point. That spiritually speaking, not a hair on your head will perish. Perish was often the word used of final judgment. By standing firm, you will gain eternal life. That's what he's saying. We will not be ultimately harmed. Jesus once said that we shouldn't fear those who could kill the body, but do nothing against the soul. And you see, this is the conviction that will make you willing to put your head on the block, to put yourself in the firing line. That God has called us, and that in the end, whatever befalls us, we will stand before his throne, in resurrected bodies, before our Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us through his cross. I wonder if you've got that conviction that makes you willing to face the challenges that are before you as an ambassador for Christ. Or are you, if truth is being told, really someone that is more concerned about your own comforts and about your own security? Nikki was just reminding me this morning uh, as she had a little look through this sermon. She said, you know, this reminds me of a book. Uh, that uh, some of you may have read, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper, one of my favorite authors. This book has sold, I think, over 250,000 copies now, and it has been used remarkably in the life of many mature Christians. And there's a lot of testimonies that are coming back about this book that a lot of mature people, retired people, let's call them, have read this book And decided that they are going to head out to the mission field. Now this is people that have had other jobs. And they felt the challenge, not just of this book, but of the words of Jesus in this book. He tells his story of what he regards as a tragedy from Reader's Digest. A couple who took early retirement from their jobs. When the gentleman was 59, the woman was 51. They moved to Florida. And he said that they they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, they play softball and collect shells. This is Christians. And he says, picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people, on the basis of this kind of teaching, are heading out. He told a story at a conference I was at. He said that, There was a couple who had headed overseas. I think they were just retired. And they came to him at the end. They said, we've got 13 grandchildren. And to be honest, some of our family don't understand that we have moved so far away. And they said, we're coming to you because you understand. Do you understand? Do we get it why this is so important? Why we would put ourselves even away from family? even into difficult situations, because of this conviction that God has truly sent us. Just one thing before I finish, if that's not enough. Remember, never forget the high, high cost that the Lord Jesus paid for you to make your salvation possible and to make your service possible. You know, compared with what we are asked to do, what the Lord did is so much more 
Jesus, like Jeremiah, proclaimed unpopular things. Jesus, like Jeremiah, proclaimed God's truth and was arrested. He had no one to defend him. Even in the end, his friends deserted him. The religious leaders of the day and the political authorities washed their hands of him. The crowds bade for his blood and he was sentenced to death. Jesus took the bullet. He wasn't delivered from death. He was delivered unto death. And you see, the difference was that he had a different mission from Jeremiah. God didn't plan for Jesus' protection. He planned for his crucifixion and death and resurrection from the grave so that you and I could be saved this morning from eternal judgment. And so if you have never accepted Jesus, if you're not a servant of God at all this morning, then I urge you today to come to Jesus in faith and embrace all that he has done for you. He's paid a price that you could never pay. And if you are a Christian, then how about the small change, the small prices that he asks from us because we have this sure conviction. Let's pray.